Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we may hear you speaking to us today and that our lives, with our lives, that we may respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a couple of years ago, Ben and I had the huge privilege of attending a garden party at Buckingham Palace. You should have seen us dressed to the nines, rather, waiting rather self-consciously at the Garrick Villa bus stop to travel into central London. Of course, once we arrived at the palace, we no longer felt overdressed, as everyone else was also in their finery, and what we were wearing just seemed appropriate to the, to the manicured lawns, the military bands, and the finger sandwiches. We got to see Her Majesty the Queen in person, perhaps only maybe 10, 10 metres away from us, as she greeted particular pre-selected guests in the receiving line. Suddenly the Queen wasn't this sort of distant celebrity figure seen only in photographs or on TV. She was a living, breathing human being standing there right in front of us. It's truly phenomenal what she continues to do that still now in her 90s. And she was accompanied and supported on this occasion, as many others, by other members of the royal family. Perhaps you can tell that I wrote this talk um, before the events of this week. One day the crown will pass on to this next generation of royals, and that's likely to be an emotional time, an emotional time of transition and uncertainty as an institution which has remained the same for, for most of us throughout our lives, changes and ch transitions. And Isaiah was facing such a time of transition, uncertainty and change. In verse 1 of chapter 6, we're told that King Uzziah had recently died. And what follows was then experienced in that particular historical context. So while there was material prosperity in Judah, there was also a lot of corruption. Uzziah himself had been punished with leprosy for profaning the holiness of the temple. And there were storm clouds on the horizon. There were earthquakes, which brought a sense of unsettling uh, foreboding. The empires surrounding Judah kept threatening invasion. So when King Uzziah died, the whole of Judah was left asking, what's next? What's to come? What does our future hold? And it was at this time, this moment of transition, that Isaiah received this vision and commission from God. The whole passage is, is full of action. There's noise and image. It's, it's totally sensory overload. There's swirling and rumbling and incense-laden air. And amidst all of that, there's voices speaking, singing, responding, commanding. So much that we could go um, into here. But today we're going to focus specifically on these voices in this passage. Specifically three voices. Firstly, the worship of the seraphim. Secondly, the repentance of Isaiah. And thirdly, the command of God. So first of all, the worship of the seraphim. We read in verse 2 that Isaiah encounters the Lord on his throne and he notices those who surround him. So in verse 2 we read, Above him were seraphim, each was six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. What an awe-inspiring sight. And these seraphim were not passive or silent, they were calling out in praise as they flew, Holy, holy, holy! is the Lord Almighty. Now the Hebrew word translated here as holy is quadosh, one who is totally other, transcendent, totally powerful and perfect. But despite this, this otherness, this transcendence and power and perfection, he's not distant or absent. No, it says the whole earth 
is full of his glory. So the Lord God is both holy and perfect, an elevated king, but he is also with his people. I don't know if you've ever noticed, um, but here at St. Mary's, we, as we worship every week, we have a reminder of this reality by the mural. No, not the large, rather brightly coloured one at the back, but the, the older one painted over the arch up here. You can probably just make out the words, holy, holy, holy. It's a song which echoes throughout the ages. In Revelation 4.8, we find in John's vision of four living creatures before God's throne, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So as we see these, these words each Sunday, we're reminded that worship does not start with us. It doesn't begin with the the first notes played on the organ or the opening of our mouths to sing or the beat of a drum or the strum of a guitar. God is the one who is holy, 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 high and lifted up, and yet with his people, active throughout time and history and creation. As we gather, we, we join in with that worship of the seraphim, the worship of all the heavens and the earth. Even if we ignore God, fail to recognize him or willfully reject him, his praise continues. It's what Jesus was referring to when the Pharisees asked those who were exuberantly worshipping to tone it down a bit on Palm Sunday. We read in Luke 19, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. God's glory, his holiness, does not depend on us and on our worship. But we can choose to to join in or we can fail to do so. But his worship and his worthiness continue regardless. So, along with Isaiah, having contemplated the worship of the seraphim, let's turn our attention now to his response. Maybe today we might expect Isaiah to get all excited. Wow, wait until I tell everyone about this. Or, can I get a photo for social media? But instead, the words he utters are not words of joy or excitement or wonder, They're words of repentance. In verse 5, we read, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the glory of the King, the Lord Almighty. The first word which comes out of his mouth as he responds to this vision is, Woe! Woe! Isaiah expresses his sadness his utter despair, his recognition of the the distance between himself and the holiness and otherness of God. Remember, Isaiah lived in a country which has lost its king, first because of his foolish behaviour in the temple, then by his sickness, and finally by his death. And in this vision, he has been presented with the true king, high and lifted up. Now, it's not like Isaiah has been silent or passive in the life of Israel up until this point. 
Last week, we heard some of his early pronouncements about the seriousness of the sin of the people. So in the first five chapters of this book, we read statements such as these. Chapter one, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. Chapter three, the look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Again in chapter 311, woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. In chapter five, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Isaiah already has a pretty good line in woe. He's been busy prophesying, declaring God's judgment and revealing to Judah the depth of their woe. But now he who declared woe on others recognizes his own inadequacy and declares woe. Woe is me. Before the holiness of God... All self-righteousness disappears. All all faithful worship pales before the never-ending worship of the seraphim. All judgment of others is burnt away before a recognition of one's own need. Have we come to this place of what we might call worshipful woe? Certainly less painful to remain self-righteous and judgmental and, and distant But before God, we recognize our need. Our participation and involvement in a society, a people who have turned their backs on God, and our own need and desperation. For Isaiah, the resolution is found in the very specific cleansing of his lips through a divinely applied coal. His lips are cleansed and he's freed to worship and released to speak for God to a people of unclean lips. Our cleansing also comes from God, but rather than a call, we are sanctified and freed through a person, through Jesus. In John 17, we read about Jesus praying on the night before he died to those who follow him. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And just as Jesus sends us as his disciples, so Isaiah is sent, entrusted with a task. So having considered that the worship of the seraphim, the repentance of Isaiah, let's turn our attention finally to the command and commission of God. Because it's only at this stage in the vision that Isaiah is ready and able to hear the voice of God. It's only after experiencing the the true worship of the seraphim, after recognizing his own guilt, and after receiving that free gift of grace and forgiveness that Isaiah is ready. Any earlier, and his here I am would have come out of a faulty perception of God and of himself. But now when he hears the the word of God, his response is humble and obedient. We read in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. This little phrase, here I am, which in Hebrew is hanini, 
is one which is found throughout the Bible. It's characteristic, willing response of those whom God calls. We find it on the lips of Abraham, of Jacob, of Moses, of Samuel, of Isaiah, of Mary, and of Ananias. And the author of the book of Hebrews also puts it on the lips of Jesus. We read in Hebrews 10, when Christ came into the world, he said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Here I am. Hanini. Have you come to a place where you can pray that prayer? Where you can willingly offer yourself to God in response to his call? Now, it's probably worth clearing up just a a few misunderstandings which it's easy to have about this notion of of calling and response. To to know yourself to be called, you don't need to have this kind of multi-sensory experience or, or overwhelming vision, a personal sense of God's booming voice calling you to go and to do a task on his behalf. This passage does not set the standard for calling. In a moment, we'll think about why it was necessary for Isaiah, but we shouldn't use it as giving us the standard for calling against which we can measure our own experience. Ultimately, we are all called. We can all hear the calling of Jesus to come, to follow him, to learn from him, to know the power and equipping of his Holy Spirit as we love God with all that we are, learn to love our neighbour, and share his gospel with the world. Whatever life situation we find ourselves in, we are all called to live as his disciples, to bring him glory and honour, and to reveal his love to others. We shouldn't feel inadequate or, or downplay the significance of the call to follow Jesus just because our experience has not been as dramatic as that described by Isaiah. Nevertheless, there will be some commonalities in our sense of calling. We too need to choose to join in with what God is up to, to utter our own, Hinini, here I am. We too need to recognise that our very ability to make that offer of ourselves is not due to our own holiness, our own giftedness or, or generosity, but is simply an act of worship which arises from a recognition of our own inadequacy and God's holy sufficiency. It's an act of worship in which we lay ourselves down to be used as God wills. But that's where we normally stop. Here I am, send me. We rarely think about those verses which follow on from that. We end with Isaiah's call. We're prompted to to ponder our own response to a holy God. But Isaiah's given a hard message, and a message that the people won't like and won't heed. Verse 9, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, the fields ravaged and in ruins. It's a pretty dire message for Isaiah to carry to the people. Isaiah will need to to remember his experience of call and commission. He'll need to remember that he is sent by a holy king who has graciously redeemed him. It'll be tough. He'll face opposition, disappointment and disgrace. 
we too need to, to cling on to our own experience and understanding of the one who calls us. The one in whose name and whose power we go out to share his word, his life and his love with those around us. So today, may we be encouraged in our own life of discipleship, hearing and heeding the call of Jesus as we go, as we go out from here into our workplaces, our homes and our families. May we be those who honour the King joining in with the worship of the seraphim, recognising our own inadequacy, failure and sinfulness. As Isaiah knew himself to be cleansed and freed by the coal that was touched to his lips, may we know the cleansing and freedom offered by Jesus. And may we be those who offer our own, here I am. And who know the joy of heeding the call of God as we follow Jesus as his disciple. Amen.